with a new year, we, we have a new series. And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to uh, the book of Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. That just means it's short. Uh, it's three chapters long. It's, it's towards the very end of the Old Testament, about three books before the book of Matthew. Uh, if you have a phone, you can find it on Bible Gateway or, or a Bible app. Uh, but it's, it's in that part of our Bible sometimes that has less worn paths into it, and that's to our spiritual poverty. I really think that this book has, has some tremendous things to say to us as individuals and as a church in the days to come. So as you're turning there, uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, um, just a question. Did anyone actually make any New Year's resolutions? Every, this is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> has anyone ever heard of a guy named Jonathan Edwards? Okay. Okay. We got some Jonathan. Okay. So he sets a good bar for us for a re- resolution. So that, that, uh, that destroys my second question of, has anyone broken their New Year's resolution yet? Um, which you can't break, which you don't make, so there you go. Um, and I, that threw me off. But um, <laughs> let's, just, let's just go into the Word, and I'll pray for us here as we're, we're going. So Habakkuk chapter 1, we're going to just kind of introduce this book, and over the next several weeks, we'll dig into it. Uh, but we'll just do verses 1 through 4. And as I read, just... It's always just ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Let's pray. God, as we come to you this first Sunday of a new year, Lord, we we want this year to be a year that we do go deeper in our our love for you, our love for each other, deeper in our, our confidence and assurance of who you are, Lord, I thank you that you are a God who knows every day of 2018 already, and you know every conversation we'll have, every high and every low. And so, Lord, help us to be a people that learn how to rest in that and rest in who you are. So now, as Lord, as we unpack this word, I pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my lips would be honoring and glorifying to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, When you... When you live overseas and, and spend some time in another culture, you see that other cultures uh, view di- Americans in different ways. Uh, one of the ways that's most common, especially in Europe, is that Americans are seen as uh, extremely friendly people. And I, I guess that's a good thing. Uh, if you ask a, a Czech person, give me your impression of Americans, and they would say, they're very smiley. And, uh, and they say, well, talk like, act like you're an American. Talk to me like that. And they'll be like, oh, you talk with really big mouths. You, 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 you like to smile and show your teeth. And we're like, that, that's funny, because I didn't think uh, that's how we were. Because Czechs, they have very small mouths, very small kind of personal, personal expression. 
And for the most part, I think that's a good attribute. We're friendly, uh, we're happy, but, but to the right person, or the wrong person rather, that can be seen as kind of disingenuous. Like, there's no way you people could be that happy all the time. Like, what are you trying to hide? And so they, they might think that Americans are, are kind of shallow, actually, because no one can just be happy all the time. We have a phrase, how, how, how are you doing? And, and it's expected that you would say, I'm good. I'm fine. In fact, we, we, we would say that to each other. Even if things aren't good, even if things aren't fine, if I ask you, how are you doing? You're like, ah, oh, not so good. I'll be like, oh, that's not what I meant. Uh, we're, just, we're just trying to do this formal, formal thing. Uh, but that's what we do. But that's not what Czechs would do. Like, like if you ask a Czech, yaksimash means how are you? Yaksimash. They might respond, yasim špatný jako meaning I'm bad like you. <laughs> and, and, and that's just kind of expected. Like, if you were a Czech and, and you were talking to another Czech and you're like, I'm good, they'd be like, well, who do you think you are? You think you're better than me? You're good and I'm bad? No, you're bad like me. And uh, so, so that's just kind of how they, they would relate. But we come by it honestly, actually, in our cultural DNA. We, we, are, we are happy, we're, we're smiley kind of people. See, if you look back in history, uh, uh, when America was birthed, it was birthed in a time that the Enlightenment was birthed, the age of optimism. And, and in the age of optimism, it was this idea that, that the world is going to get better, not because God's going to make it better, but because we're going to make it better. Our sciences are going to make it better. Our philosophy is going to make it better. And, and there's just this kind of uh, optimistic air that the Americans especially were breathing, that, that we can forge our own way and uh, we're going to create a utopia on earth. And then that, that was true for the most part, for a lot of the land of opportunity. As long as you weren't from Africa, that was true. But, but for, for Anglos, it was true. There was this optimistic time. And then uh, that continued on through the 1800s, except for the Civil War. Uh, but for, fast forward, it was this uh, into the new century. And we thought, man, this is the century that everything, the 20th century is going to be amazing. And then 1914 happens. And, and in the midst of the birthplace of optimism and the enlightenment in Europe, World War I starts. And this horrific war was known at the time as the war to end all wars. I mean, it can't get any worse than this. We're going to make things better. It's going to be a brighter day. But we know the story, the most bloody century in the history of humanity, the 20th century. Follow up World War I with the Great Depression. Follow that up with the rise of Nazi Germany and the atrocities of World War II. Follow that up with the atheist regimes of Mao and Stalin killing millions of their own people. This, this project that, that, that humans would create a utopia uh, found its, in, through modernity, found that it wasn't delivering on its promises. And so out of that came something known as postmodernity. That's not going to work anymore. But, but still, in America, as we turn the, the calendar, what do we do every year? Like, at the end of 2016, man, I'm glad we got through that. Can't wait for 2017. Many of us are like, wow, 2017, 2018, that's my year. That's our year as a country. We're fine. Like, we're just bent toward everything's going to be better. Everything's going to get nicer. Everything's finally going to be achieved in our life. But but then the reality strikes, and every year it strikes. There's moments where you're disenchanted. 
The Bible is neither, I said this last week, neither optimistic nor pessimistic. The Bible is an extremely realistic book that after the fall, after sin entered into the world, uh, there there was just this kind of downward spiral. And no matter how much we try to fix things, like uh, there's there's hunger and starvation, so we'll we'll, we'll create GMOs and that'll make more food and that works, but then we have all sorts of other spinoff problems. Or um, at one point they said that, you know what would be good to put in our houses? Asbestos. That'll help uh, retard the fire. Well, that's true, but not so much. And every effort Effort we make seems to be like, well, there's also this downside. And yet we think, oh, maybe this is the year. Maybe this is going to be it. But the Bible is extremely realistic. I mean, it's what we celebrated all last month. The Bible says that, that there is a dark, darkness and brokenness out there, but also in here. And we can't quite tame it. And so we struggle with it. We, we, and, and Jesus enters into it. Uh, but even Jesus it's pretty clear that just because I'm here and just because I've rescued on this side of eternity, there's still going to be some dark days. And, and, and if you're older than seven, you've probably had some dark days. And probably if you're younger than seven as well. Where, where you've cried out to God, like, I, I don't understand what you're doing, God. Like, I, I spoke with my, my mother in her last years as she was degenerating from Lou Gehrig's disease uh, just so many times, like, why is God doing this? Why, why am I suffering like this? And there's no answer except for uh, on this side of eternity, there, there's still some brokenness there. Now, part of it, we could see through it and see, well, actually God was enriching and deepening her faith like no other time in her life. But you've had times like that, right? There's been times where life just doesn't make sense. That's what Habakkuk is experiencing here. I remember uh, August 17th, 2005, driving to the hospital in Okinawa to deliver our, our second child, Abby, and I was surveying the Old Testament that year, uh, and I was teaching that week on Job. And I remember thinking, I don't need any illustrations, God, as we're driving to the hospital, and apparently I did, uh, because as, we, as, as Jennifer gave birth very quickly, they didn't have time to do the um, or did it only work down one side or something like that? Left side, left side, no pain. Right side, extreme pain. Uh, apparently, that's really that's worse than not having it at all. Uh, but uh, we think everything's fine. But as soon as Abby comes out. Um, they don't put Abby on uh, in her mother's arm. They don't say, hey, come over here, Dad. They, they have a team of about 12 doctors and nurses, and they say, Dad, if you want to come with us, we got to go right now. And, and so we run down the long hallway to the NICU. I'm like, what's going on? Well, she has heart irregularities. We're worried it's going to stop. Well, I've shared that story before, but uh, just that moment of like, Lord, what are you doing? What, what's going on? And, and all the wires and all that. And, and we were then there for several days for, for about a week in the NICU. But we also had a two-year-old at the time, Zoe. Uh, and so I remember going home and picking her up a couple days into it to meet, take her to meet her uh, two-year-old or her newborn sister in the NICU. And so she had the little mask on. And it's a great picture we have. I should throw it up there, but I don't have it. Uh, and, 
and she's meeting her sister, and, and I'm thinking, this is kind of traumatic. So as I take Zoe out of the hospital, I said, Zoe, why don't we go get some ice cream? And she's like, that's a good idea. And so two-year-old Zoe gets in the back of my van, in the, in the, buckled up in the car seat, and we're driving, and we drive on base, and, and, and going, and there's kind of a, there's a Baskin-Robbins. Now, two-year-old Zoe doesn't read, but she knows those colors and those shapes basically mean uh, ice cream. And so we're driving, and I'm at a light in front of the strip mall where the Baskin-Robbins is, and, and from the back seat, I hear, Daddy, Daddy. I'm like, yes, Zoe. And, and she points with her two-year-old little finger at the sign of Baskin-Robbins. She says, Daddy, Daddy, you made it. Good driving, Daddy. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I'd never had that compliment before. I think I had run a red light earlier, but she didn't mention that. But, but in her two-year-old mind, and the contrast with what we were going through in the IC NICU uh, was just striking to me, that, that for her mind, that I delivered her to ice cream. Therefore, I was a good driver. I think about that often because I think that, particularly maybe in the American church sometimes, we have... Uh, a two-year-old view of God's blessings. God, oh, oh, I got a promotion. Good driving, Daddy. Uh, I'm feeling healthy. Good driving, Daddy. Like, I never got that compliment when I'm like, Zoe, we're going to go get you some shots because this is for your good. That compliment didn't come. But, but how are we to, to go deeper, though? How, how are we to mature beyond a two-year-old kind of faith uh, in, in 2018? I think Habakkuk is going to help us with that. See, each of us are going to have times in life, whether it's 2018 or 2019, where, where you're going to get punched in the soul. And in those moments, what will be your foundation? What will be your ground? And if you're a kid, maybe you're, a, you're new to the neighborhood and you just want to make friends, but the neighborhood bully picks you out as his target. And you cry out to God, like, what's going on? Maybe you're, you're a young adult and you're trying to get into school and you get a rejection letter. And you're like, I thought that's where you wanted me, God. Or, or you apply for your first job. It says it's an entry-level job, but then it says you need five years of experience. And, and you're like, how is that? Where's the disconnect there? Maybe you're a single person and you've just, you just long to be married. And the Bible says the man who finds a wife finds a good thing. And so you're like, Lord, this matches up. But the years go by and you're not getting married. Or maybe you are married and it's not turning out like you thought or you hoped it would. The person you married is a different person than you thought. Or you thought you could change that person and it's just not working out. And you cry out to God, Lord. I thought it would be different. Or maybe you're married and you want to have kids, and so you begin trying, and three and six months go by, and you're like, well, that's kind of normal. But then three and six years go by, and the kid still doesn't come. But every time your friend gets pregnant and you have to go to a baby shower, you have to put on a smile, but you go home. And, I mean, we've sat with couples like this many times. Why, God? Maybe you want to do an adoption, and there's just so much need, so many orphans around the world, but the, the red tape and the cost and, all, and the time and the bureaucracy, and you cry out knowing that your kid is somewhere in some orphanage out there. You, you cry out, why? Why? See, Habakkuk is going to challenge us, 
and it's going to comfort us. Habakkuk's going to challenge our illusion of self-sufficiency, our illusion of, uh, of omniscience, that we know all things, uh, our illusion of uh, omnipotence, that, that we're all powerful. Uh, Habakkuk's going to show us that actually we don't know very much. You don't know what's going on behind you right now, let alone in the kids' room right now. We're not letting out bears or anything like that, but you don't know what's going on with your kids if they're in the kids' room right now. You don't know what's going on around the city right now. We actually know very, very little. We know less than we think we know. We have less ability to control the circumstances in, in our lives than we think we do. And so Habakkuk's going to challenge that, say, you don't have it. But he's also going to comfort us. Because if we can get past that, when life does punch you in the soul then there's some foundation. My, my prayer is that 2018 would be a year that, that as a church we would grow up. Not only as we enter into our second year as a church, but, but as us individuals that we would, we would have a deeper root in, in the foundation of who God is, his purposes, and his plan. Habakkuk's going to give us some permission here to, to lament, to, to cry out. But let me just set this up because we're, we're not going to get too deep into it here. Let me set up the times in which Habakkuk preached. Uh, just give you a five-minute church, uh, church history, Bible history lesson here. Uh, God called Abram, a pagan, out of the land of Ur, think modern-day Iraq, and, and said, I'm going to make you a, a, a father of many nations. And you're, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And we talked about that last month through waiting. And, and you think, okay, God, we're ready. But there's just all these fits and starts and, and brokenness and violence and generation after generation. Uh, by the end, we find that the people of God are in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And you're like, this doesn't look like your plan's working out, God. But eventually, they, God delivers them. And, and again, it's just these fits and starts and violence and bloodshed and, and brokenness and sin. And, and at a certain point, the people of God call out, God, just give us a king like all the other nations have a king. And God's like, that'll go poorly for you. And they're like, no, please, we, we want a king that we can see. He's like, I'll be your king and you'll be my people. And they're like, no, 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 we want a person. He's like, okay, I'll give you Saul. Saul's a tall guy, looks like a king. Uh, they're happy about that, but that goes very poorly, very quickly. And uh, the people are like, oh, this is not good. And so God raises up uh, the second king, King David. Now, now, the Bible describes King David as a man after God's own heart. And so when you first hear that, you're like, oh, man, he must be like a superhero faith guy. And in some ways he was, but in other ways, he's deeply flawed character. Like if I got his resume for the church planning residency, I'd be like, no, you actually should go to jail. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I mean, besides the fact that he was a terrible husband, a, a terrible father, um, the Bible says he's a man after God's own heart. One, one day he sees Bathsheba, uh, who's married to someone else. He's like, I want that. He takes that, gets her pregnant, decides to cover it up by murdering Uriah. Her, her, so, so he's an adulterer. He's a murderer. And yet he's a man after God's own heart. Why? Because his righteousness wasn't his righteousness. He understood repentance. He understood falling on his face before the holy God and, and crying out and receiving grace and mercy. And so God uses him to, to write most of the, 
the, the, what we'd call the songbook or the psalm book or the hymn book of the Old Testament, the Psalms. And he's kind of schizophrenic in there. Like there's days where he's, he's like, Lord, where are you? I don't know where you are. And there's other times you turn the page, you're like, God, you're, you're so close to me, I can barely breathe. Turn the page again, it's like, how long, oh Lord? You don't even care about me anymore. Turn the page, he's like, man, the heavens declare the glory of God. But if you've been a Christian longer than a week, you can relate to that, probably. There are times where you feel like your prayers are being heard and, and, and that glory of God is around you. And then there's other times you're like, am I just praying to my cat? Like, is, is that the only creature? I don't have a cat. My dog? Is, is the ceiling? Is my prayer? Like, there's just times like that. And we can relate to David, and David has this passion for God, and he looks around, and he says, God needs, a, we want to make a temple, not because God dwells in a temple, but it can be the representative place for his dwelling with his people, and so God says, yes, but not you. You're, you're, you've got bloodshed. You're a, a warrior, David, so your son can, and then the Bible has a verse where David dies, and the Bible moves on, and I love that. All the men and women of the Bible, in a verse, they die and it moves on. And that's true for you and that's true for me. A day is coming where we will die. They will say some nice things at our funeral. They might remember us for one generation if we're lucky, but two or three, you'll be totally forgotten. And that's okay. If you know, if you know how to live in light of that day. Well, he moves on. Solomon comes up to the throne. It's kind of the golden era for Israel. Uh, there's peace, there's prosperity, and things are going good. But by the end of Solomon's reign, there are some warning signs on the horizon. Uh, things are, are starting to turn. Uh, he's, he's the wisest man on earth, and yet he does some really foolish things. I never understood that. Uh, but he writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's like, all this work and all this toil, all this accumulating of wealth is meaningless because one day a, a moron's going to come down my line and waste it all. That's a paraphrase. But, and that's exactly what happened. He dies in a verse. The Bible moves on. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they fight. They split the kingdom. So Israel was divided into 12 tribes. 10 of them in the north became Israel. Two in the south became Judah. And they had their own kings and they would never be united again. The ten in the north uh, constantly just turned, like, it was a race to see how, how fast they could abandon God and, and go after all the other gods. And God, eventually in the year 722, sends the Assyrian superpower to destroy Israel, and he stops them at Judah and sends them away. Well, after, uh, so where am I at on the story? Okay, so then... Uh, I'm just trying to get to the, to the context here. So then, then in Judah in the south, you have, you have mostly bad kings also leading them away. But every now and again, someone would try to turn the people's hearts back to God, try to come back. But, but it would just kind of be overall this downward spiral. And it got really bad with a guy named Manasseh and his son Amon. And, and God eventually takes them out. And then this, this, this king comes to the throne, Josiah. He's eight years old. Josiah. Now, I have a 10-year-old. I just cannot imagine a kingdom on earth where she's running the show. Right, Hannah? Like, it'd be fun for a little while, but thanks. No, but Josiah, like, Josiah's the real deal. Like, if I, I have four daughters, if I ever had a son, his name would be Josiah. At 12 years old, Josiah begins to lead a revival in the, for the people of God. 12 years old. 
And I thought this week, maybe we think too little of our youth. <laughs> maybe we think too little of young adults in the church. Because Josiah is leading a national revival. And it begins to come. And, and, and now Habakkuk is on the scene. Habakkuk has, has lived. He's seen the absolute depravity of God's people turning their back. And now this, this boy king is on the throne. But God is using the boy king to turn the people back to God. And, and at one point, uh, as he destroys all the false idol worships and altars around the land, he says, the temple of God that has been neglected and dilapidated needs to be restored. And when he's in his early 20s, he sends a team to clean it up. And a guy named Hilkiah, the high priest, uh, opens up and finds this scroll and begins to unroll the scroll. Do you know what the scroll was? It was the Bible. The people of God had so neglected the Bible for generation and generation and generation. When they got it, they're like, what's this? And he takes it to Josiah, and he begins to read the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Read it out loud. And as Josiah, as a young man, hears this, he begins to weep and falls on his face and says, Oh, Lord, because the law is, is meant to show us that God is holy, and, and we fall short. And he gets on his face, and he has the law read to the whole land. And there is a massive revival. I, I don't know how we could even consider and fathom how, how, how it'd be like Hollywood. It'd be like Washington, D.C., all the sciences and all the education, all departments of our culture and nation saying, we repent and turn to God and we want to follow God. Just this massive revival. And Habakkuk is seeing all this. Habakkuk is thinking about the promise to Abraham and saying, is this what you meant, God? Is this where your people are going to be a blessing to all the nations? This is amazing. But then one day, so you got to understand, there's three superpowers. Israel is not one of them. Judah's not one of them. Judah is like Rhode Island, right? Like, I think we could take Rhode Island if we had some sticks and some rocks, right? Like, so Judah is in the middle of these three superpowers. You've got the Egyptians, they're a superpower, but they're kind of on decline. You've got the Assyrians to the north, they're also a superpower, but they're on decline. And then in the east, you have uh, these young up-and-comers called the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And they loved blood. They loved violence. Um, they loved to see just the most atrocious things. That's how they ruled and began to conquer the ancient world. And in the middle is Judah. At one point, Necho II of, of Egypt says, uh, we want to come through your land, uh, Josiah, so we can fight. We don't want to fight you, but we want to we fight someone else. And for whatever reason, Josiah says, no, you can't run your troops through my land. And so Rhode Island is like, you can't bring your army through here. And and uh, Nico's like, oh, I, I can and I will. And so Josiah puts on armor, joins the troops. You might be thinking, that's, you know, shouldn't you be kind of leading from behind? Yes, but to the man in the trenches, that's leadership. He says, I'm not just asking you to die. I'm going to die with you. And he does. His son is a moron. He takes the throne, and after, after, near, after the pharaoh does his battle up north, on his way back, takes him off the throne, takes him into cap captivity in Egypt. So, so Josiah's other son, who's a bigger moron, becomes the king. And for the next 11 years, he, lead, he reverses everything his father did. 
and the people turn to violence, and there's injustice in the land, and the people of God, it's like there was never a revival at all. And that's the context that Habakkuk is speaking. He's not speaking against the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the Babylonians. He's concerned about the people of God. And in this concern, I think we see three things, three things that uh, we can take out of this, even from this first few verses, and begin to apply so that the foundation of our faith is firmer in 2018. He says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? So he's crying out to God. Your your Bible might say Habakkuk's complaint. He's complaining. Now, now there's two ways to uh, approach complaining to to God that I think are both errors. There's one where, where you're like, where you put yourself in the place of God and say, God, if you don't do this, if you don't do that, if you don't show yourself in this way, I'm out of here. And a lot of people do that. And the second way is people say, never question God. Never question what he's doing. Like he's God and you're not, so, so just take it. Now the problem with that is the Bible. The problem with that is that passages like this. See, God preserves complaining questioning God in his word. In the Psalms, uh, 40% to 70% of them could be classified as Psalms of lament, complaints. Like, God, are are you even there? Are are you really powerful? Like, God gave permission to his people to, to cry out to him because God understands. God is infinite, but he's created us to be finite. We don't get all everything. And so he's okay with you saying, God, I don't get it. God, I, I struggle with you right now. This looks like the opposite of who I know you to be. And God gives us permission. So that's the first thing. You have permission to take your burdens to God and say, I don't understand. It looks like you're not even around God. See, you have to understand some theology here that God is, is transcendent and imminent. Transcendence means that he stands outside of the universe. He is holy. He is other. He is in control. He's, he's sovereign. But he's also imminent. And the Bible repeatedly says he is with the brokenhearted. So I think uh, the, the greatest example, obviously, of that is Jesus. Jesus being uh, eternal, being God and, and powerful, but also imminent. There's a scene in John's gospel, John chapter 11, where uh, some people come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, your good friend Lazarus, he's really sick. Come, come, come see him. And Jesus is like, no, I'll, I'll hang out here. And everyone's like, why? He's your friend. He's like, no, I'm going to stay here. He dies Four days go by, Jesus heads into town to Bethany and, and, and begins to go. Now, Jesus knows what he's going to do. And if you have any background in, in church, or even if you don't, you, you know what's going to happen. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the grave. Like, it's going to be good times again. He, he's about to do something quite powerful. But as he goes into the city, Martha, the sister, comes out, and she is, she is heartbroken. She's been punched in the soul, and she falls at Jesus' feet, and she questions him, like, why didn't you come? If you, would have came, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just say, shut up, come on, let's go. Well, you're going to see something awesome. No. What does the text say? It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept 
Like, like Jesus knows what he's going to do. But in that moment, Jesus weeps. He enters in to her pain. He knows she doesn't understand everything, but he knows her pain is real. God knows your pain is real, even if you don't know what he's doing in that pain. And he invites you to cry out to him and call out to him. And so first he gives us permission. Like, like we have permission to say, God, I, I don't understand. We do it with humility, but we do it with passion, and we do it with questioning and longing, lamenting. So we learn to lament well. The second thing, not only permission, is um, there is a persistence to Habakkuk's complaint. He says, how long, O Lord? The, the, the intention is, this isn't the first time he's come before God saying, God, what's up with your people? This, he's been on his face. He's cried the tears. He's maybe been weeks, months, or even years crying the same prayer. God, how long? Why won't you do something? I don't understand why you're letting your people be so wicked. There are things in our life that we should not expect to hear an answer from God apart from persistent and faithful crying out to God. And so we need to learn persistence. We've got permission, but now we need to learn persistence. And then the final thing is what I'll call, um, well, let's read it and then I'll call it that. Uh, Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. He's got a passion for holiness. Notice what he's complaining about. He's not like, man, my chariot broke down, God. Like, I'm just going to put that in the Bible. Like, he's concerned about the things that, as far as he knows the word of God, God is concerned about. Religion that is pure and faultless, James says, James 1.27, is to look after widows and orphans in their distress and, and keep oneself unstained from the world. So, for example, when we adopted our daughter, we had been supporting her for many years financially. We'd been taking teams to Thailand to visit. Uh, But when she was nine, we felt called to to adopt her. And we're like, okay, God, this seems to line up with your will. You you care for the the, the orphan. And so we're going to do that, right? He's like, yeah, go ahead. And for three years, we worked. We longed. We eventually moved our family to to Thailand. I stayed there for a couple months. I had to go get back to my job, uh, but Jennifer stayed. There was a bombing in the city building because of, uh, of protesters. The day after the bombing, Jennifer went down into the city building with the glass all shattered and finally got the adoption decree to go through. But it was after three years. At that time, my mom had di- was diagnosed with ALS, and, and it would have been great to come back and spend some time with her in her last years as she was dying. But the U.S. government said, no, you need to stay outside the country now that you have a foreign adoption for at least two and a half years. We'll give you permission after that. So two weeks after my mom died, we had permission to come back. And there's just a moment of like, God, what are you doing? Like you, I don't understand what what the reality and what your word says you are passionate about doesn't seem to match up. So God gives us permission to do that. He gives, he leads us in uh, persistence. And then he just says, maybe we should tweak our concerns for the things that he's concerned with. Because he is concerned about all these things. 
But as we do it, as we go in 2018, as we wrestle with God in prayer, as we're honest in our prayers and we share one another's burdens, if we don't do this, what will happen? What will happen if, if we continue to just stay at that two-year-old le- two level, good driving daddy when things are good, but what's up when they aren't? Well, first of all, we won't mature as a, as a body. We won't mature individually in our faith if we don't learn how to be honest with God. Don't learn how to be persistent in our prayers. Don't learn how to be passionate about the things God is passionate about. But other than that, if if we don't do that, you will continue to carry around burdens that you were never meant to carry around. And that's tiresome. That just doesn't work. And as you carry those burdens around, the third thing and the worst thing about that is you will give all that your energy and all your effort to overcoming that sin or that burden or that thing and take your eyes off the cross and you will just be worn out by it. So as we lament and as we pray, we have something Habakkuk didn't have when he wrote this. We have objective evidence of God's love for us. We'll celebrate it in a few moments. The cross of Christ. See, the Bible not only gives us permission to lament, Jesus knew what it meant to lament. On the night that he was betrayed, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he told his disciples, hey, guys, things are getting really, really bad. Will you just pray with me? Will you you just surround me in this moment? And they did what we do. They failed him. They went asleep and he went and prayed alone what did he pray? He said, with agony, Lord, if it is possible, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he, he prays in agony. He gets up and he sees they're asleep. And he, he goes and prays again. He gets up, they're asleep still. He goes and prays again, Lord, please take this cup from me. He's crying out to God. And his disciples are asleep. He'd get arrested right after that. He'd go to a mockery of a trial. He'd be beaten, bruised, slashed his body open, and he'd be hung on a cross. And on the cross, Matthew records that he quotes Psalm 22. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus was forsaken on the cross, you and I know we will never be forsaken. When, when you pray and it feels like your prayers are hitting the ceiling and you don't understand what God is doing in your life, we have the shadow of the cross saying, Jesus knows what it means to be forsaken. And because he was forsaken, we will never be forsaken. So that any punch to your soul is not punitive. It's not God saying, you should have shared the gospel with your neighbor. Uh, you, you should have given more. You should have done all. God, that's... All the wrath against sin was poured out on his son on the cross. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God so that when life doesn't make sense, the one thing we know as we look at the cross is God is at work for our good and for his glory. And I don't understand what he's doing here. I don't know how this is going to work out. And it's very, very painful, but we know because he was forsaken, we will never be forsaken. To that end, I'm going to lead us in prayer, but I'm going to lead us just in in some time of silence and and maybe just some permission for some people to lament. I want to pray for those that are lamenting. I want to pray for specifically my friend Jennifer Wittenberg about a year ago. Her husband died from cancer. She's 
left with five kids to raise right now. And I thought about her this week, and I thought about how she goes to bed at night in a king-sized bed by herself, and she prays to God. I thought about the 29-year-old mother who has of two now that uh, her husband who served their family and served their church and served their community as a police officer, Zach Parrish, was taken away. She should be lamenting right now, and we should lament with her to mourn with those who mourn. And then to different degrees, all of us have something. So let me just lead us in a time of some silent reflection. You pray, and then I'll close us, and I'll lead us to the communion table.